without further ado, here's Simon. Thanks, Gray. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, so as Gray mentioned, my name is Simon. I'm the pastor here at Grace City. Welcome. Um, I want to just especially welcome anyone here who's uh, perhaps new, a newbie, visiting, checking things out. Guys, we try to say this every Sunday, but we hope that, that we are, or at least becoming the kind of church community that um, really anyone can just come in and, and engage with, with people here and with what God is doing here. Um, obviously, we are, we are Christians for the most part. We love Jesus. Um, we believe in the Bible. So you're going to hear a lot about all of that. But, but we want to be the kind of community where anyone can come and, and just be like, look, I don't, I don't know if I believe any of that. I don't know what I believe, but I'd like to hear what you believe. I'd like to experience this Jesus that you're talking about. And we do that in a community context. We do that in relationship. Um, we do that in friendship with one another. So if that means something to you this morning, I, I hope you experience that. hope you feel welcomed here and feel safe and able to simply be yourself, ask questions and and do this thing uh, with us together. Um, yeah, so fasting. We're talking about fasting uh, this morning and this week. I want to just reiterate a couple of things that Brandon Gray just announced. Um, and the first one is, yeah, as a part of this, this week of prayer and fasting, we are going to be gathering here every morning at 6 a.m. to pray. Obviously, not everyone's going to be able to do that. Uh, normally, we would meet here every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. That's kind of our weekly church prayer meeting, if in case you didn't know about that. That's been going on for, um, for quite some time now. But uh, obviously, this is a special week. So every morning, starting tomorrow morning, we're going we're gonna to pray together at 6 a.m. So if you can come out for that, if work will allow you to do that, if you can make it to one of those mornings, we'll be here. Um, and we're going to do that in partnership with, with another church in the city called Door of Hope. Door of Hope, most of you, I think, probably know, owns this building that we lease from them. Uh, they they kind of outgrew the building. Um, actually, the kids outgrew the building. They, they, they started reaching, connecting with all these young people. Uh, they got married, as we do, and then they had babies. And then all of a sudden, there wasn't enough room downstairs uh, for the kids' ministry. So then they have their Sunday morning services at Revolution Hall. But we have formed this amazing friendship with them as, as two church communities. Um, and I, I interact with their, their pastor there, a guy named Josh White, uh, quite regularly. Anyways, we're going to be praying together with Door of Hope, uh, 6 a.m. Every, every morning uh, this upcoming week. And here's this. This is the part that, that Gray did not mention. We're going to keep it going. Um, so I'm told that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. Have you heard, heard this number? It's, it's, it's a thing. 21 days. So what we've decided, we are going to pray at 6 a.m. every morning, starting tomorrow morning, for the next 22 days. Right? Hardcore. Hardcore. This was not my idea. Um, but I'm going to do it. So uh, Josh from Door of Hope, he pulled me aside a couple weeks ago and he's like, hey, Simon, I have this idea, which just always makes me really nervous. <laughs> 22 days, consecutive days of 6 a.m. prayer here in the building. Are you in? I said, of course I'm in. Like, are you going to throw down the gauntlet? I'm in. <laughs> so I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Are you guys in? Yeah. 
Okay. Some of you, I suspect, are totally in because that's just how you roll. Some of you are like, nope, not happening. Good luck with that. Have fun. I'll be praying for your prayer endeavors. Um, but if you're into it, 22 days straight, starting, that, that means Monday through Sunday. I'm talking like seven days a week, 6 a.m. prayer. So one of my life's ambitions, one of my goals, I would love to be the kind of Jesus follower that starts my day every morning with an hour of prayer. That's, that's like a serious goal of mine. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to go 22 days, see if I can't form a habit. And uh, if you're into that, well, see you here tomorrow morning. See, see what we can't make happen. Um, okay, so that's that. The other thing is just wanted to reiterate the prayer and fasting guide. So uh, you may not know this, but Grace City is a part of a larger family or, or network of churches called Every Nation. It's kind of our worldwide church family, and it's a bit of a denomination. It's probably the easiest way to think of it, and you can check out everynation.org if you want to find out more about that. But that, that's, our, that's our church network that we're a part of. And uh, so this week of prayer and fasting, we'll actually be doing that with other Every Nation churches, including Grace City in Corvallis, um, including Grace City in Eugene, and many, many other Every Nation churches around the globe. We'll all be praying and fasting together. And so we have this cool little prayer guide, which is essentially devotional through the book of Ephesians for the week. As Grace said, you can find this in digital format at the website, super easy to find. There's like this massive button at the bottom of the homepage prayer and fasting week, and you can find it there. So if this kind of thing helps you, um, check it out. It's also got some practical tips in there just about just some of the things that you need to consider in terms of your health if you're going to be doing a prolonged kind of fast. I'm going to be doing an intermittent fast this week is what I've kind of decided. Um, so think about what you want to do. That guide will actually help you sort of think through some of those things and then also supply a devotional for you to, to be reading through the book of Ephesians throughout the week. Um, and if all of this is like, gosh, fasting, like, serious, I'm, I'm new, I've, I've not thought two seconds about this, think about it. If you want to jump in, go for it. Um, it could be an incredible experience for you, especially if you've never tried fasting before. It's pretty hardcore. Okay, so before we do this, before any of us begins this week or these five days of prayer and fasting, it's really, really important that we understand, like, why do we do this? What is the point of starving ourselves? How is this spiritual? How is this meant to help me? Um, because it would be really unfortunate, it is really unfortunate, to fast for the wrong reasons. Um, because that's not actually Christian fasting. That's just, like, hunger deprivation, um, and hoping that somehow that like your piety impresses God and now he's going to do stuff for you. That's just not what it is at all. Um, and in effect, what you'll end up doing if you attempt to fast with that mindset, you're just going to be really hungry all week. And, and you might not really um, get what it's, what it's meant to be and the benefits that it's supposed to provide for a follower of Jesus. So this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a teaching on fasting so that hopefully if you do decide to fast with us in any way for any amount of time during this week that, that our hearts and, and our minds can be in the right place and it can just be an amazing experience that's really all about Jesus. You guys with me? Okay, great. Um, so I recommend taking notes this morning. I, and I don't recommend that every week, but this might feel a bit more like a theological lecture 
than a preach. So just a bit of a heads up. You don't normally take notes. It might be helpful to jot down um, a few notes this morning because we're going to be covering quite a bit of biblical ground. We're going to be looking at quite a bit of scripture. I'm going to read a little bit um, out loud to you guys. So thinking caps on, heads up, here we go. Um, The first time fasting appears in the scriptures is in the Old Testament, a book called Judges, chapter 20, verse 26 to be specific. The context is uh, one of the most disturbing acts of sexual violence has just taken place. Um, I'm not even going to go into the details because it's just, it is just absolutely disturbing. You can read it in Judges chapter 20. Um, but it's, it's arguably one of the most disturbing portions of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible. This happens as, uh, in response to that, civil war breaks out in Israel. Um, basically, 11 of the tribes confront the tribe of Benjamin, and literally a civil war erupts. Tens and thousands of people are killed. And in response to all of that, the people of God declare a fast. It is not a positive moment in the history of God's people. They're mourning, they're crying out to God, there's repentance, there's, it's, it's a bad, bad situation. And for the most part, virtually every other instance of fasting that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is, is in some sort of negative context. Something's gone terribly wrong. Someone's died, someone's dying, someone has sinned, someone's mourning, something has gone wrong, and so therefore the people of God, they're they're mourning, they're fasting, they're crying out to God for mercy, for help, for escape. But for the most part, fasting in the Old Testament is is always um, seen in the context of something really tragic, hard, and, and difficult. Until we come to the second to the last book in the Old Testament, um, a book written by an ancient prophet who went by the name of Zechariah. This is where we're going to begin our study this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Zechariah. Um, should be around page 790. It's the second to the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament, just before Malachi. Now, guys, you get, bear with me. Bear with me. I'm going to attempt to not bore you to death, but really lay out several dots that I want us to connect together so we can really get the essence of the, the purpose of fasting as Christians. And it's very important. I'm, I'm going to try to make a clear distinction between fasting as we see it done and the reasons why we see it done in the Old Testament versus how we see it implemented in the New Testament. And it's very, very important to make that distinction because although God never changes, the God of the Old Testament is no different to the God that we see revealed in Jesus in the New Testament, but what does change is that God has done certain things in history. Everything changes in the light of what God did in Jesus about 2,000 years ago when he died on a cross 
for our sins and then rose again from the dead. Game changer. God hasn't changed, but everything else has. So we need to understand that if we're going to fast for a week, we need to do it as Christians. We need to do it in the light of what God has done in Christ. So I'm going to make this distinction. I'm going to attempt to make a real distinction between fasting in the Old Testament and the New, because most of the blogs you're going to read online about fasting is simply give you like someone word searched fast, and you get most of those words popping in the Old Testament, and then you see a few in the New, and, and there's really no sort of distinction between, well, but is there a difference between fasting in the Old and the New? Okay, you guys get that. Zechariah, are you there? Um, let me read, we're going to start in Zechariah chapter 6, and verse, brought my glasses, I'm getting old, there we go, that's better, oh, that's so much better, thank you, looks, looks smarter, yeah, okay, let me get smart, um, Okay, let me, let me say this first. Zechariah 6 is where we're going to go. Beginning in Zechariah 6, God speaks to the prophet and begins to describe a time of justice and mercy, a time of salvation for his people, a time when those who were once far off shall come near and take part in rebuilding the temple, the place on earth where the presence of God is meant to dwell. The prophet describes a time when a man whose name is the branch, that's important, begins to reign as a priest who sits on a throne, that is, a priestly king, a king who makes atonement for the sins of his people. This is what we're about to read. So, Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Um, whose name is a branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be, and there shall be a priest on his throne. So it's connecting the priest and the king, the crown in the temple. In verse 15, he goes on to say, and those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. Skipping forward a little bit in chapter 8, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Zion is the nation of God's people. Jerusalem, of course, is the center of it. Verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Chapter 8, verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, therefore love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, verse 22, 
Many people and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, men from nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. And then finally, in chapter nine, and this we have to include this bit, chapter nine, verse nine, Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Guys, if you've ever gone to Sunday school, there should be like all sorts of like flags waving, lights going off. The symbolism is rich. The branch man, the priestly king who comes bringing salvation to his people. The humble ruler who enters the city riding on the foal of a donkey. Does does any of this sound vaguely familiar. Now, if you're not like, I don't, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. This is just all super weird. I don't even own a Bible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, just, just bear with me. We're going someplace. Now, about a hundred years prior to this ancient prophet uttering these words, about a hundred years prior to that, there was another prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He said this. You don't need to turn there. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, and he says the same thing in chapter 33, verse 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and that B is capitalized. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This uh, mysterious branch man He's mentioned again a hundred years prior to Jeremiah. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses one and two. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. There shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, now I've just put out a whole bunch of dots. Now we're going to connect them. This mysterious branch man, the offshoot from the stump of Jesse, this ancient uh, family, this lineage from which the rightful redeemer of the world is meant to, to, to come from. Who is this branch man? Who is this priestly king who's meant to enter the city riding on the back of a donkey? Who is this mysterious ruler who will usher forth justice and mercy? The one whom the spirit of the Lord will rest upon. The one who, when he comes, fasting, which has always been this like occasion for mourning and repentance and tragedy will all of a sudden become a feast of cheerfulness. Do you get the, the, the poetic irony of that? Fasting will become a season of joy and gladness and a feast of cheerfulness. 
Who is this mysterious branch man? Well, that's the last time, Zechariah is the last time we read anything about fasting in the Old Testament. The next time we find something written in the Bible about fasting is in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's go there. There we go. Matthew chapter 3. Now it gets good. Chapter 3, starting in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Hmm. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that is God, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, there it is, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, apparently it is humanly possible, although I reckon most of us would die. (laughs) That's, That's not funny. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Ah, go figure. Verse 3, and the tempter, that is the devil, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's, that's, that's below the belt. But he answered, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting has become something slightly different upon the arrival of Jesus. Um, A few points on this passage. Number one, um, if you have not figured out, Jesus is the branch man. He is the branch man. He is the one that Isaiah was talking about. He was the one that Jeremiah was prophesying of. He is the, the king who eventually just towards the very end of his earthly ministry, just prior to his crucifixion on a Roman cross, came into Jerusalem riding on the back of the foal of a donkey. And let me just tell you, you don't need to be like a historical scholar to know that every person in that city knew exactly what Jesus meant by by that prophetic act. The king had come. The priestly king, the ruler who makes atonement for the sins of his people, the one who brings salvation, the one who brings justice and mercy, the offshoot, the root of Jesse, the one who comes from the stump, the branch who bears fruit, the king who enters the city riding on the back of a donkey. It's, it's Jesus. He is the branch man. Dots connected. Number two, Jesus didn't fast for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness because something was wrong. And this is the the real distinction that I want to emphasize. His fasting for 40 days in the desert wasn't because he had sinned. It wasn't because something had gone terribly wrong. It wasn't in the, the, the context of some great tragedy. He had just been baptized. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove had just come and rest upon him. And the words of God the Father, 
spoke out of heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he was led by the spirit out into the desert where he proceeded to fast for 40 days. Nothing was wrong. In fact, this was the very reason he had come. He was fulfilling his purpose as the priestly king, the Messiah. So that's very, very important. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if, what if I'm mourning? What if something is terribly wrong in my life? What if I am like addicted to some sin that's killing me and the people around me? You might very well be, um, in which case, mourn, repent, cry out to God. Um, get yourself some sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, if it will help you. But understand that when we see fasting now being implemented in the life of Jesus, something very, very different is going on. Jesus is not reacting or responding to some great tragedy or sin. He's being led by the Spirit. He's just received those those powerful, transformational, those good words spoken by his father. <laughs> you are my son. You are my son. Now I want to I I take you someplace. I want to lead you someplace. And for 40 days and nights, what was, what was Jesus doing? What was he doing? He was communing with his father. He was drawing near to God. I, I mean, you have to, I suppose, to some extent... Um, look between the lines. But Jesus, he was, he was feasting on those words. The words that he says, look, at, you want me to change rocks into bread? He's hungry. Scriptures say explicitly, he was hungry. And the tempter comes and he says, if you are who you think you are, if you are who your heavenly father just said you are, then why, why don't you do so? A little miracle. Well, no big deal. If you are. And his response after 40 years of meditating, 40 days of meditating, which by the way are, is a parallel for the 40 years that Israel spent in the desert upon coming out of Egypt. The water of baptism represents the water uh, that the Israelites crossed over when God parted the sea. It's a picture of baptism. Lots of deep parallels. And he's meditating on those words. He's feasting on those very words that proceeded out of the mouth of his father. You are my son. His identity was being formed. Something very good and powerful was happening. His fast certainly was preparation for an incredibly intense spiritual battle. Um, a couple weeks ago, I preached a message on, on the, the river, the garden, and the empty cave. And we were reminded how uh, in the same way that, that Adam and Eve, our, our, our parents, the original humans, were tempted in the garden and failed to resist, okay, Jesus did not fail that temptation when he was in the garden. So there was an intense battle for sure in the desert, in the garden, all along the way, it was preparation for that battle, but it wasn't in response to something that had gone. He was being led by the Spirit 
And having just received those powerful, formative words spoken over him by his heavenly father, as I've just said, he was walking in full authority, full awareness of who he was in deep intimacy with his heavenly father. Point number three. While fasting, Jesus had learned to find deep security, even spiritual nourishment from every one of the wor- those words that had come from the mouth of his father. And point number four, this is when fasting becomes a cheerful feast. Guys, I don't like fasting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Uh, that's not entirely true. It's one of those things, um, I don't know, it's like going to the gym. It's like... Uh, what, what those things that you're like, I hate it. It's like riding my bike here when it's really cold and wet out. It's like a good 45-minute ride. Not fun most times, unless it's like that one day in the spring where the sun is shining and the weather's just right, and you just, I could just ride for days. Otherwise, I generally don't enjoy it. But when I get here, I think, gosh, I, I really should do this more often. I should do this every day. I feel great. I feel alive. That's kind of how I feel about fasting. When I think about it, I get slightly nervous. I'm like, oh, it's going to be hard. Uh, maybe I, f- I feel like the Spirit's maybe leading me not to do that. <laughs> so weird. Mm. When Jesus talks about fasting, later on, he, he teaches on fasting. Most of what Jesus himself has to say about fasting um, is mostly to do with like, like how not to do it. He says, when you fast, okay, don't put on a big show. Don't, don't, you know, don't get all like, don't stop brushing your teeth. Don't you know, like wear your tight you know, shirt that, so everyone can see your ribs. You know, don't, don't, it's not a show. No one's impressed, um, including God, because it's, it's not that. It's not this, this act of piety that's somehow supposed to impress God or people. Um, Jesus tells a parable about a, a tax collector who's like your, your quintessential sinner in the New Testament, and then the, the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes to the temple, he goes right up front, and he begins to pray out loud. And he says, God, I fast twice a week, and I do this, and da-da-da, and I give, and, and, uh, and he, he feels quite justified, um, quite, quite righteous in himself. And then there's the sinner who's just like in the back, and he's like, God, I got nothing. Like, I, 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 I'm not even impressed with myself. I, I'm just, I don't know what else to say. And it says the tax collector, the sinner, went away being justified before God because he came with an attitude of, of repentance and humility, realizing that there's nothing we can do to impress God. That's the beauty of grace. God's like a loving father who, who, who meets us in our weakest state. In fact, demands that that's, that's where we begin our relationship. He's God, and we're totally not. And we need, we need it to be just like that. And so Jesus talks about, well, don't, don't think of fasting that way. Don't think of it as somehow like your bargaining chip before God. Like if you do this, then perhaps you can, God will do that. In fact, let me, let me just make a, a bit of a side note. This is a very, very important principle. If you ever want to properly understand Christian theology, remember this, because it can get slightly complicated. 
The gospel says, let me start this way, religion, let me put it that way, quote unquote, religion says that we come to God to get. The gospel says God came to us to give. Massive difference. Religion, piety, moralism, these, these kind of things, pick your word says that we come to God to give. We come to God with our, our great morality. We come to God with our great religious piety. We come to God with all these, not bad things, just things. We come to God with these things somehow thinking that like we have a bargaining chip and we barter with God. I'll do this if you do that. We come to God to give, but the gospel says we, we really have nothing to give God. Um, he doesn't need what we've got any more than I need what my four-year-old has. The gospel says that God comes to us to give, which is exactly what he did in Jesus. When we were broke, bankrupt on every level, eternally imaginable, God comes to us and gives us everything we don't have because he's a loving, grace-filled father. So when we think of fasting, we mustn't think of it as something that we do to get something from God. That's not what Jesus was doing. We do it to draw near to God. Or rather, we do it to become more aware of just how close God is to us because of who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. This is the cross. This is the the great scandal of Christian theology. It's so humbling and and just ego-destroying. Amen. Amen. Let me just sum it up this way. The essence of Christian fasting, it isn't punishing our bodies so that we might convince God that we're really serious or that we're seriously sorry about something. We might be both of those things, but rather we fast purely and simply as a means of drawing closer to God. That we might listen to his words more intently and learn to trust him more fully. We deprive ourselves of physical food that we might stimulate an even deeper hunger for greater intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And this is where we experience power. Because spiritual power is always preceded by relational proximity in the Bible. Let me say that again. Okay, we need power. We need God to be for us helping us, guiding us, setting us free. This coming year, I'm thinking about like um, overwhelming hurdles that, that I'm facing personally, even as a church. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting that God is, is growing us and, and he's doing amazing things at Grace City. I, I celebrate it all. Um, because we're, we're a one-year-old. We've got, we've got giants to slay. We've got adventures to go on and great challenges to face. We need God with us every step of the way. We need his power. In the Bible, spiritual power is always preceded by relational proximity with God. You want to experience God's power in your life? Seek after intimacy with him. Obey him. Spend time with him. Listen to him. 
chase after his kingdom and what's on his heart. Draw near to your heavenly father and you will experience breakthrough. You will experience answered prayer. You will overcome temptation. Not because somehow you've wrestled power out of God's hands as if he's withholding his Holy Spirit from you. No, because when we draw near to our Father, we find that he is with us. He is with us. I love the way um, John Piper, I don't know if I've ever, ever quoted Piper here, um, but he's good. He, he, he states it conversely. He says it like this, the absence of fasting is the measure of our con- is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. The absence of fasting is the measure of contentment with our absence of Christ. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we've drunk deeply and are satisfied, it's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. Can we go to the final slide, please? Here's the summary of it. Fasting is a means for making room for the great, or rather the greater one, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit who dwells with and within the child of God. This is fasting. This is what we're doing this week. We're emptying ourselves in a very, very practical, very practical sense, not in some sort of abstract kind of ethereal way. Like literally, I'm emptying my body out just dumping calories, stomach empty, so that I might make more room for the greater one. The irony is, when we empty ourselves, we we discover quite quickly that it's not as if God was ever withholding. In fact, what we really realize, and this is, I I would say this isn't quite theologically correct, because you don't get more of God. He's not withholding any of his spirit from us. What really happens is we become more aware of Christ in us. We realize, man, I've been, I, I've, been, I've been wasting my appetite on junk food when God daily, consistently is setting a feast in front of me. And if I would just stop wasting my time on these little worldly things that give me such momentary satisfaction... I would find that God is much closer than I could possibly imagine. And there's a feast that's waiting for every one of us. So that's what we're doing this week. Any questions? No? Can I invite, um, well, we're going to do this. We're going to respond now. Um, we're going to take communion. Uh, for some of us, this might be your final meal for the week. And we'll take communion again Friday night at our worship service. But we're going to do it slightly different this morning. Um, if you're serving communion, can you go ahead and, and, and take your spot? I always like it when we serve each other communion. Um, because that's exactly what we're meant to do, is serve each other. Um, so we have people who hold the elements. You'll, you'll you probably notice, if you just look, Uh, instead of one cup that we're dipping in, we've got individual cups. Um, So I'm going to invite the band to come up first to take the elements, and you can go ahead and and make your way to the stage. Um, They're going to play some background music, and then I want to invite every one of you to come up, take a cup and a piece of bread, hold on to it, and come back to your seat. We're going to take communion together.
If you're not a Christian, or there, there's sin in your life that you feel like you've not uh, confessed to God yet or dealt with, and, and you feel like this, this would not be proper for you, no pressure. Um, although, this could be an opportunity for you to give your life to Jesus, to put your faith in him, to turn from your sin and, and entrust your life to Jesus and begin to follow and obey him. Or if you have sin in your life that you need to confess, you could do that to the person you're sitting by. You could do it quietly in your own heart right now. You could grab me, but I don't want anyone to feel like they're disqualified from, from this moment right now. Can we stand together? Thank you, Hannah. Father, thank you for thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us, uh, to suffer in our place, the consequences and the weight of sin, so that we can be set free, so that we can experience new life, so that we can we can draw near to you and and experience that that feast of cheerfulness as we, we experience more of what it means to be your sons and daughters. And we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you're ready, um, go ahead and get the elements and bring it back with you to your seat. things that have just stood out to me about it. Um, one, the, this is a tradition that Jesus himself established, and we get to follow in that tradition something that he himself was told his disciples to do, and we're still doing it, which is just cool. But also that when he established communion, it's in scripture, it's between the point when Judas was going to betray him and left. And the point when Peter says, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, well, yeah, you will. And it's, cra- it's never struck me before that he's established this tradition, this hopeful act, this symbol for us in between probably the hardest moment of his life next to being on the cross where he's looking at his friends and he's looking at the situation he's in and the scripture says he was anguished and he was troubled deeply depending on the translation but he says in the gospel of john in that moment he says i'm giving you a new commandment which is to love one another as i have loved you and in the gospel of matthew he says this bread this is my body that has been broken for you. And I don't think it's an accident that those things are paralleled, that his love that he is establishing and telling us to follow in, just like taking communion, he's saying love one another, and he connects it with his sacrifice as the ultimate act of love.
for a friend and for family now, that we can call each other family and we can look forward to hope that he will fulfill. So with that, would you take the bread with me? And would you take the cup? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, you've started a work in us. Wherever we're at, whether we're in a good time or we're in a bad time, or we're facing adversity, or we're celebrating, or whatever we have, whatever we don't have, Lord, you, you have a hope for us. You say that you're not going to drink of the vine again after you establish that first communion until the new kingdom where you'll drink with us. Lord, that's a promise, Lord, and we look forward to that promise. We look forward to this day where we won't just be taking communion amongst friends and family um, as congregations, Lord, but we'll take it as the full kingdom with you and you will be with us again in person and your kingdom will be fulfilled, Lord. Everything will be done. And until that, Lord, we ask that you would guide us. Lord, we just thank you that you have established so much for us. Even this this act and everything that it does to help us remember you and your sacrifice, God. Would you be with us, Lord? Would you receive our praise and worship? Would you receive our prayers, our questions, everything that we have, all of our sin, all of our troubles, God? We just give them over to you, and we thank you for everything that you are, Lord. Amen.